How do our identities as people shape who we are as teachers? Today, I talk with Dr. Winifred Hunsberger about how to discover new perspectives in these times of great upheaval. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Dr. Hunsberger is fresh into a new chapter of life, retirement. I wanted to capture some of her thinking about what teachers can do right now to help navigate these ridiculous times, because I won't have her down the hall from me when I return to the classroom. For the past 10 years, I would often be in Winifred's office either getting her opinion on something, trying to work through a teaching dilemma, or just talking about life. In so many ways, I felt like Winifred was my school mom. And not just because of our ages, but also because Winifred is one of the most caring, loving, and thoughtful people I'm blessed to have in my life. In our conversation, Winifred explains why she loves snowstorms and how this relates to our present tense in education right now. After hearing her explanation, your thinking about the purpose of storms might never be the same. I am equally excited and honored to welcome Dr. Winifred Hunsberger to the show. Let's jump right in. Uh, Dr. Winifred Hunsberger, it is such a treat and a privilege to get to talk to you for a good chunk of time together. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. So I want to just start by saying I've known you now for 10 years. I know this because I just celebrated my 10 years at school. Um, And I've known, like you've been at the school the whole time I've been there, plus some, plus many more. And ever since I've been at the same school as you, I've always seen you as one of the smartest, the most brave, and one of the most thoughtful people that I know in education. Um, and I, I want to just remind you of this because at one point you referred to yourself as a professional irritant in our school community. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And I loved this. And like, I keep coming back to it in my mind of like, Oh, it's such a good term to give oneself. Like no one else can call somebody that, but it, I love this idea because it speaks so much to your ability to ask hard questions to like cut right through the noise of what's going on. And like, you push everyone to be better in education. So I am really glad that I get to talk to you and ask you questions about this because I think we all need your wisdom at this time. So let's start. I want you to introduce yourself by saying who you are, where you're from, and what do you do? And you can approach that however you want. So I'm Winifred Hunsberger. I'm from all sorts of places. Um, I grew up in a little uh, village outside of the city, Port Credit, uh, which eventually got swallowed up by Mississauga. I, um, I've lived in Edmonton and Kitchener and Waterloo and India in New Delhi and Kashmir. And uh, I've lived in North York and Toronto, downtown Toronto, um, which is where I'm from now. Um, and right now I'm, I'm in Magnetowan, Ontario, mm-hmm. which is uh, not far from Huntsville. I love that. So you are... all those places are part of who I am, I think. Yeah. What do you do now? What do you do now? What do I do now? That's a horrifying question. <laughs> um, I, 
I, I, I, well, I dance um, every Saturday night. Um, Darby, my friend, and I uh, hold a online dance party and we throw up uh, all kinds of crazy uh, music, everything from uh, Herman's Hermits to Vampire Weekend to the Rolling Stones to David Bowie and, <laughs> yes. and uh, Marvin Gaye and and we dance online with uh, people from across the country and sometimes even from, you know, exotic places like New Zealand or <laughs> Bangkok. So, uh, so that's one thing I do. I also lead a small group of uh, women who are my age. Uh, uh, we meet every Wednesday night or so, every other Wednesday, and uh, we're investigating together what it means to be aging, um, mm -hmm. even though everyone's aging. It starts to take on different meanings, I think, at different points in our life. So I, I'm doing that. Um, and I'm also preparing to be a facilitator with the Center for Courage and Renewal, um, which is a, an organization uh, based in the United States, but with facilitators around the world. So that's, that's that. And, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm knitting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to get into more about all those things, but we're going to back up a tiny bit because you sure. recently retired from education. Mm -hmm. So yes, you do hold dance parties, but prior to your dance party <laughs> <laughs> journey, uh, you were doing some really cool stuff in education. I want to just take a little snapshot because usually like, I feel like with COVID times, there isn't really a proper way to celebrate you and the mark that you've left on our school community. It's sort of sad that we haven't been able to like drink wine together with a bunch of other people. Although you said you didn't want that, which I respect. Mm -hmm. But looking back on your career, what do you feel especially proud of in regards to all the things that have happened for you professionally? Well, if I've learned any lessons in the last year or so, it's not to get too chuffed with yourself about anything you've done mm. because there, something might seem really terrific in the moment and then later on, you know, in hindsight or um, with new ideas or a new perspective, it may not seem as terrific as it was. You know, you do the best you can in the moment, but don't cling too tightly to mm. achievement and um, those kinds of things. That, yeah. that um, who was it? Somebody the other day said something really great. It might have been um, Thomas Homer Dixon, who said something like, you know, it, it's good to have values and vision and things, but we also need to be able to recalibrate. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, that's, that's just it. Like, we, we need to be able to recalibrate. So things that seemed like crucially important to me, you know, even two months ago or three months ago seem less critical now and other things that maybe didn't seem so exciting or wonderful. Mm -hmm. I see them in, in a new light and in, in, in a new way. And I think that that's just part of, of being human is, is mm -hmm. facing what's in front of us at this time. And uh, I think COVID and, uprisings and um, all of the things that just keep flying up in front of us, the election in the United States, um, all of these things that seem to be happening in such rapid and dramatic fashion right now, I think are really 
bringing me at least to a, a point of recognizing that we need to be uh, flexible and open and listening and questioning again um, what we think we know. Um, that, that that's that's what's really happening for me right now. Um, and also just um, the importance of really finding um, finding the stuff that makes you happy now, mm -hmm. <laughs> like dancing, um, that, that those things are so important in being able to face some of the really um, disturbing, distressing, frightening things that, that are just, just seem to rise up as you, mm -hmm. you know, turn on the radio in the morning. I had a professor at Boise who taught math and I remember her reflecting kind of in the same line saying, oh my gosh, I wish I could go back in time and find my students that I first started teaching 20 years ago and personally apologize to them because now I know so much more about how to teach this concept. And I, I feel like because you are such a strong critical thinker, I, I totally empathize with that feeling of like looking back on some of your moments and thinking, oh, I know so much more now. I would do this differently or I would approach this problem with the knowledge I have now. What do you hope your students have felt about you as a teacher looking back? Like what would be like the nicest compliment to get from a student from 20 years ago? I think that just that, well, that, that they had a real experience that made them think, that, mm -hmm. that made them understand understand and appreciate how intelligent they were not that i taught them to believe in themselves but that they believe in themselves because they were able to see see it in action hmm. um that they were able to uncover things for themselves um there is there is it there is a moment and it was from that has never left me and it was sort of like yeah this is this is what I'm about. Like, this is what I want to do. And yet I have no control over it. Like, all I could do is like, kind of hope this happens. But the, the very first year I was teaching, in the very first few months I was teaching, um, I had a bunch of, it was the weirdest class. It was a six, seven split. I think there were like 25 kids in the class, five girls, the rest were boys. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was real. Like it was a really weird setup. The kids weren't weird. The kids were amazing. <laughs> and um, I, I wanted to, I was, you know, fresh out of, out of Boise and I really wanted to like get into like some inquiry stuff and something that was really going to grab them. And this will sound so bizarre. Uh, and then I'm trying to work with all this curriculum stuff. And we did a, we got into this project looking at, um, the Voises Bay, which is in Newfoundland, nickel mine project that was going on. And, and I chose it because there was a relatively good article in the Globe and Mail that sort of discussed all the different stakeholders in it. And I gave it to the kids to read, first of all, just as a sort of like a reading thing, like read this and see if it's interesting and what questions do you have and so forth. And bizarrely they got really excited about it because it the article didn't offer any answers it just sort of presented the dilemma of it they knew we were sort of we needed to look at um issues around indigenous people 
they knew we had to cover politics and government and things like that in the curriculum. And, and so I said, well, like, would this be a way, like maybe we could investigate this. And together we sort of concocted that they would split into little groups and each group would ha be a, like a stakeholder in it. And the whole thing culminated in a round table where each of the stakeholders, you know, the people who owned the nickel mine and the Innu and uh, the Inui who were also implicated in this and the provincial government, and the federal, like everybody came with their side of the story. And one of the kids, when it was all over, I mean, and I think I had an agenda, like, or not an agenda exactly, but like I had a hope that they would really like build some empathy um, and see that, you know, this particular point of view had been neglected and so on and so forth. But what happened was this one student, when it was all over, he was sitting there and he said, wow, you know, like I listened to those guys over there with the federal government and I thought, wow, like they're really right. And then I, I listened to the guys from like the Innu and I thought, oh no, they're really right. And then I listened to these people over here and I thought they're really, and it was this, like, how can we know who's right? And can, is anyone really completely right? And it was just this opening to other perspectives and understanding that there's this complexity and this, uh, that things aren't, you know, straightforward and that there isn't a, like, here's the answer. And like, they all just, we all just sort of sat around and, and went, wow, like, yeah, maybe that's a little bit like that. Like, wouldn't that be great if we could just appreciate that around so many of the dilemmas and controversies that it isn't like a right or wrong or, you know, these people are evil and these ones are like, golden and that there's all of these various ways of understanding a, a problem and and even when we understand the various ways it's still really hard to solve mm -hmm. um, so it i think like that was such a moment for me um and one that i hadn't anticipated and i don't think i could have really planned for that's what i had hoped and i think continue to hope in whatever work I'm doing, that it opens space for understanding things, for new perspectives, for getting a fresh look at things. Like, I think mm. that's what really matters to me. Um, and to embrace complexity. Like, I feel like you yeah. do that really well, which is just to yeah. hold multiple truths at the same time, to not yeah. get too narrow in your thinking. Yeah. yeah. That's really important. And especially for young people in grade six and seven, like that would be very powerful. Yes. And I, I mean, the other thing about that age group, I, that's such an awful way to refer to them, but is it, it, you know, developmentally, this is the time when that brain is really opening up and they're really starting to understand that they can have their own opinions, that there is a world beyond like the world they've been used to, which has been like their home going to school, you know, after school sports or brownies or scouts or whatever, um, that, that there's so much beyond that. And I think if I, you know, had a, had a chance to do it again, 
it would be to continue to say, no, you've got the equipment here to start to understand this, like dive in because actually those of us back here who've been trying to figure this out have been doing a crap job of it. <sighs> and we need you to come with your fresh and new ideas. So it's that, you know, the new plants coming up and using the hummus of the ones that came before them, um, you know, not sweeping it away, but kind of building on that. So I think that's what, that was such a moment for me. And, and it was something that, I mean, I don't know if I ever had one that was the same, but that was kind of what kept me going for the speaking, next 23 years. <laughs> well, speaking of keeping you going, you've talked to me quite a bit about your work with the Center for Courage and Renewal. And it basically sounds like teacher heaven. I don't know if that's <laughs> how you would describe it, but tell me a little bit about what the Center for Courage and Renewal is. I just, I mean, the way I understand it is that it was founded a number of years ago by um, Parker J. Palmer and um, someone else whose name escapes me, um, that it came out of work he had done with teachers. He had written a book called The Courage to Teach, and he started to see the need to provide space for teachers to really explore their their own inner teacher and their own reasons and passions for wanting to teach because he held out that um that we teach who we are and you know maybe i'll just sort of go in a slightly different direction here i i read the book when i was um when i'd started to do graduate work in education and and it just like it blew my mind i thought wow like this is such an incredible and such an interesting concept um, and we sort of, you know, in one of the classes I was in, you know, we were doing, you know, one of those things where you're presenting something that you've learned. And I was working with a couple of other um, teachers and we were uh, bringing some of the exercises and ideas that he had about how we could explore who we are as teachers, like creating a metaphor for yourself about it as a teacher, um, that sort of thing. And, and I, I really thought this is really important work. But when I came to write a thesis, um, this whole notion of we teach who we are became one of the central pillars of the thesis. And in the thesis, I was examining how three teachers were really able to and really skilled at providing inquiry learning experiences. And I was doing that because I'd been in a role where I was supposed to be getting teachers to uh, use inquiry in their classrooms. And it made total sense to me. Like I could see how it worked and I thought it was great and I loved it, but an awful lot of them like hated it or didn't want to do it or didn't get it or didn't see the value in it. And, but there were some that did. And I, and I thought, well, let's not, you know, for a thesis, like, let's do something different. Let's not study what's wrong here. Let's study where it's going well. So let me look at teachers who really love doing this and see what it is that really kind of turns their crank, why they like doing it, why they're successful at it. And this notion of teaching who we are and understanding what drives us and so on just sort of bubbled up as I observed three teachers who were, you know, just really loving their jobs, really turning into students' questions, really, um, sometimes even when the kids were going in a direction they didn't want to, they, they, they'd go, okay, you know, let's see what's, what's here, and discovering 
how much kids could learn by, you know, getting into the stuff that mattered to them and asking questions and the teachers pushing them to ask better questions and so on. But what started to become apparent to me is that inquiry was really feeding into who they saw themselves as teachers. So one of them saw herself very much as a teacher who wanted to empower young girls and young women. And so inquiry was like the ideal way to do that because you were saying what you think and your questions really matter. There was another one who really was, um, well, she described herself as a nomad and she had taught in all kinds of places all over the world, but she really saw the world as a kind of classroom. And, and even though she was teaching like grade one, she would like whip those kids out into the world. They were constantly not in the room. Like I'd go to observe and then she'd say, get your coat on, you know, and off we'd go. And we'd go down into the ville and the kids would lay on the sidewalk and draw what they saw. And she, you know, or they, they, they'd want to study jewelry, which horrified her, but she, you know, they were so insistent that she let them do it. And then, you know, they got into this whole socio-cultural study of jewelry and what it meant and why people wear it and why people in different parts of the world wear different jewelry and just like this rich, rich thing that was going on um, that you would never have imagined. And they got their math out of it. They learned about symmetry. They, uh, you know, it, all this kind of extraordinary stuff, but it was feeding into this kind of, nomadic kind of desire to explore the world. Um, they were teaching who they were. But what was really cool was by being like, you know, we're in this study and they're telling me their stories and I'm watching them and I'm just feeding back to them. I'm not saying to them, look, I, I see you're teaching who you are. I'm just sort of like showing them images of themselves or little videos of themselves. And they're starting to see themselves and rehear their own stories. And then they're able to step into that in even more powerful ways. Mm. And that's what, for me, the work that I'm engaged with and that the center's engaged with is kind of all about, is being able to hear your own self, being able to step into who you are with integrity and honesty and and not to, um, I mean, <sighs> Parker Palmer uses this phrase, divided no more, to not have like, you know, like your teaching life and then your home life, but that, that it's all kind of a, you know, it's all kind of a thing, you know, like, and it doesn't mean that there aren't different facets to it, but that who we are is who we are. And we can't deny parts of ourselves even when we're in the classroom. It doesn't mean we, you know, spill our guts or, you know, show pictures of our vacation to our students. But it does mean that we embrace who we are fully as we're, as we're, as we're with kids and as we're with each other. I can't um, help but think about the moment that we're all currently in, in education right now too. Like this is perhaps the hardest chapter of education that our generation has gone through. And, you know, teachers are really struggling right now. Like many teachers are finding this to be 
an insurmountable challenge to get through. What do you think from this work or this concept of we teach who we are, how do you think that might support teachers at this time? I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I can only speak for myself. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't mean to, to make light of this situation at all, like whatsoever. I know this is terribly, terribly challenging. And people's lives have been turned inside out. And people are ill and people are dying and people have lost jobs. And I, 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 there's no question, this is an extraordinary moment. But... <laughs> It seems to me that those of us who are still engaged and have, have jobs and are still engaged in education, that what this moment, I feel that what the moment asks of me is, what do you have to bring to this? And then do it. So, you know, when it first sort of erupted, I'm so embarrassed to say this, I was kind of excited. Like, I'm one of those people who like loves a good snowstorm, not because of a snow day, but because there's something about it that drives me back to almost like that survival thing. Like, how am I going to get through this? Like, what can I draw on? Like, what do I? So there was something in this that said to me, this is an opportunity to look at what we're teaching in a really real way and ask it, what do you have? So if it's a discipline or it's a way of teaching, what do you have to offer this moment? And, and why so are you I, here? I think that's yeah, like, like, why am I here? Like, why what, are you in what? education? Like not you yeah. specifically Winifred, but like for us to ask ourselves this, like what brings you to this profession and how is that going to help you get through this time? And uh, I'll, and, and for me, so I want to say two things and, and maybe we'll edit one of them out because <laughs> I don't, but I, I just, you know, between you and I, anyway, one of the things that happened to me really quickly was I had to stop going along with things that I had used, that I used to go along with just because like, I don't want to cause waves and these people are really smart. It was like, no, you know what? Right now, I have to say what I think is true. And I'm okay if nobody agrees with me, but I can't not say it. So I have to ask that question. I have to say, I think this, or I disagree with that. I can't be involved in supporting things that don't seem right to me anymore. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm okay if I'm wrong, but I can't compromise myself. That's what that, the moment did for me. But I, I, what I do want to tell, talk about was how one of the things I was, you know, I was able to do during that time was there were teachers I had been um, in conversation with all year through a, through a process. So I, you know, I, offered to help them in whatever way I could to help them as they transitioned really rapidly to online learning and kids being at home and, and, you know, like whatever you need me to do. Like if you just need me to sit in and, um, you know, make notes of what kids are saying or like anything you want me to do. And, and one of the, um, the art teachers said, Oh, 
why don't you just come along? Like, just come along and, and see what's going on and how the, how it's going. And I'd love to hear what you think. And um, maybe you've got some ideas. And what I saw in those classes was it, it like it blew my mind because that teacher so naturally, it seemed to me, stepped into, okay, so you're at home and you're an artist. What's your art studio at home? And where is it? And where do you work well? And what does this mean? And how is it changing you as an artist? And, um, and, I, and the kids started to answer those questions. And they said extraordinary things like, like simple and yet like mind-blowing. I, I, I can only really remember one really clearly. But she said, you know, like my, I'm working on this thing and, and it's, it's there in the corner. I've been, you know, I've been doing my history work and then I go and get my lunch and I walk by it and I see it and I go, oh, oh, look at that. I, maybe I could just change that a little bit. And then I go and have my lunch and then maybe I come back and I do a little bit, but then I go and I do something else. But it's in my environment. Like it's not on top of me, but it's always there. Whereas if it was at school, mm. like it would be in the art studio and I would just visit it every other day when I had that class. It, there was something in that, that, that he invited them to really think about themselves as artists in this new thing and not like, oh dear, you know, we're all at home and this is terrible, but like looked for, looked for what this offered and brought it up and encouraged it to come out you know and I don't know if it worked for all of the kids but you know some of them really became prolific and started to produce things and it became a way for them to work their way through what was happening instead of like this subject they were taking which you know for many of them that's what art was but he really seemed to go towards what this discipline could do now that everything has changed. And do you feel like that was a reflection of who this teacher is? Yeah, I think it, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe in some ways, you know, cause I've, I've been in that class, you know, many times and uh, you know, when it was in a studio and um, I think that's sort of what was always in his mind, but this really juiced it in a, in a way, you know, by taking it out of a classroom um, in a school, it made it uh, a more like real. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, that's what I had. I would hope that as teachers, we can do like this moment offers us a, a new perspective, a way to understand things differently. And, and when we start moving into that, then not that it makes things easier, but there becomes meaning. There's yeah. a way to make meaning of it. Um, and it's a way for education to be the real thing that I think it's supposed to be. Not this thing that like you do and you know you get through it so you can do the next thing. That it, it is life. It's just like, you know, the teacher who took the kids out into the world. Like, it's the same 
thing. Like it's this opportunity to, to use the discipline or the technique or the whatever to, to be real. There's so many quotes in what you're saying. Like I am so excited to listen back to this episode and like scribble down all these little snippets of what you're saying because it's really- It might all be nonsense. No, but I'm going to be putting some of these up in front of my face when I am back in the classroom to remind myself of this because it is so crucially important that like we actually sit down and say, okay, well, who am I at my best? Like at my core, my most like- essential characteristics and how can that be translated into what I'm doing in yes. this paradigm. And if you are honest with yourself about like your real strengths, cause we all have, you know, parts of ourselves that we don't want to teach that we don't want to like be transmitting to our students. Yeah. If we're actually really in tune with those strengths that we bring to that role, getting through these really difficult chapters in our lives, in our classrooms, in education, I, I feel like instinctively we move through them with a little bit more grace. It's not easier, but I feel like we get through them with a little bit more ease, maybe a little bit more. And I think we sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. And I feel like it has to be hard. If it's hard, it means we're doing it well and we're engaging yes. with it. Yeah. Oftentimes at school, you're the person that I go to when I'm like, I just need your opinion on this thing. And you like, you're kind of like my school mom. And I, I don't know if this is like, <laughs> it's like, I'm about the same age as your children. You're about the same age as my mom. So I feel like, like <laughs> you're the person I go to when I'm like, just tell me the thing, like, just please support me in this. So I'm going back to school in like a month and a half to be a teacher. You know me well. Um, what advice do you have for me as I step back into this role in a pandemic? I mean, one of the things, so I'm going to take it back to the Center for Courage and Renewal. Mm -hmm. So in the whole sort of processes that we use, one of the things we have are um, something called touchstones, and there's 12 of them. But one of them is that when we're in, well, well, you're not in conversation, actually, but when you're doing this kind of work, and you're, you're trying to sort things out. One of them is no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting each other. I, I guess it would be to, you know, if I have it to give, it's to cleave to your strengths, to stay true to yourself and to look after yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's sort of my, the impression I get about the Center for Courage and Renewal. It's about teachers learning how to take care of themselves yes. so that they can take care of their students. And have yes. you, in your, in your career, did you figure that really delicate dance out for yourself in terms of oh, how I, to take care of yourself so you can take care of the school? I, 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 it took me, I feel like it took me a long time to get there. It's probably only been in the last, uh, three or four years, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And what did that look like for you? Well, I think, you know, sometimes just saying no. Yeah. You know, like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or leaving when I wanted to leave, not when I thought I should leave, you know, Oof. like, right? 
like but does that come like, just because like you have enough time in the profession that you're like I know I'm not going to get fired I know that I'm good I know that I'm worthy of my position the fact that that only came after like you know, what was it like 20 years in education at that point <laughs> yeah it's pathetic um I mean no it's, it's not pathetic but it's like it takes like you have you know that you have value. So do you have to get to that place before you can say, no, I'm leaving now. I have to put this down. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But the only person that can figure that out is yourself. Like lots of people, you know, had told me I had value, but I didn't believe them or I wouldn't accept it. Or, I mean, there's also that sort of, oh, you know, a little martyr bit that goes on. Or there might even be, I don't know if there was competition in it or what, but it was, it was getting away from a kind of perfectionism and, and, and also just being less concerned with what other people thought. So that's who's in education too. Like who gets drawn to this profession are people who like being in school. And usually, not always, usually the people who like being in school were people who were good at school when they were a young person. (laughs) And like those tendencies of like wanting to like, I don't want to say please people, but perhaps that's what it is, kind of goes hand in hand with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. But it's hard. I think that like, I think that speaks to like the struggle is real. Like the struggle is actually very present for many of us. And then, you know, you throw a global pandemic on top of it. Because I think for a lot of us, the struggles that we're having in education right now, we're always there, but the volume has been turned up. But it's also offering this moment where, you know, I mean, it is, it, it, it is in many cases a crisis moment and that's a moment where you can go well wait a minute what am i doing here yeah i hope we're all i hope we're all doing that in a way and actually changing things around so what do you what do you hope changes because of the pandemic like if you could look into the future we'll do a futures protocol right now Um, because (laughs) of the pandemic what do you hope is better about education 10 years from now i hope that it becomes in every way imaginable, more diverse mm. and less classroom centric and teacher centric even, and that it it becomes truly more experiential. Like, uh, you know, we see like the glimmers of it with things like, you know, the forest schools and the, you know, and, and I mean, I do... Th- I do believe too that there is so much of so much fundamental value in in some of the principles of Reggio Emilia, um, but I think they I think we need more and other perspectives coming to it. I think it needs to just to embrace all different ways of learning and and valuing the student as capable and competent and creative and yeah yeah and that that's the center of it i, I i'm not <sighs> articulating this really well no i'm i'm picking i just throwing down like sometimes i just think school is so dumb like i just think <laughs> i will quote you on that put it up on instagram well, right no but i'm so like, think school is so dumb who in the first. world would take how much sense does this make? Let's get 25 five-year-olds and put them together in a room. 
with an adult yep. or maybe two. Like <laughs> what kind of sense does that make? Like they're not ducklings. Like, you know, <laughs> like they weren't all. I lived in this kind of funny townhouse complex where the backyards weren't fenced in. Like they had a fence on either side, but then they all opened up onto this green area. Oh my God. That's if my kids dream. hear this podcast <laughs> and I, they hear this, they'll go, she's not telling that story again. <laughs> but it was so seminal in my own understanding of education. And this is before my kids went to school and before I became a teacher. And we moved in there on June 2nd. And so uh, later that month, school got out, and all the kids who lived in the thing were all out on the hill, you know, that all these backyards opened out onto playing. And it, it, at the end of June, they were all in their age groups. By the end of August, that was gone, and they were all playing all different ages together. Like, there'd be little groups, like little gangs. They were like little gangs. And there'd be like the 12-year-old and the 8-year-old and the 4-year-old and the 7-year-old and, and the boys and the girls. And they were, they were all mixed up. And they weren't in these kind of arbitrarily weird, segregated age group things. Like, it was the thing. And they were, like, you could see they were doing stuff and kind of learning. But, nope, don't tell them that. Like, they were... They were just really, it was great. Well, they would have um, gravitated probably towards the people that had, you know, similar emotional ages or similar interests or like, yeah, like complemented you know, each doing... other. Yeah. 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 And, but it was at that moment that I went like, what, what, yeah. why do we do this? And you could see the older kids were learning stuff by being with the younger kids. And, mm. you know, the younger kids were getting kind of inducted into society. Um, <laughs> like yeah. kids' society. Like it was, it was so cool. And they all had, you know, and it was also a very, like, you know, this was, it wasn't right at Jane and Finch, but it was close to Jane and Finch. And it was a very diverse, like, they're all different kinds of kids. There was, you know black kids and Greek kids and Asian kids and you name it. Like there were, there was no sort of dominant group out there and they were just all hanging around. And the other thing is because of the way it was set up, all the mums and the, the parents were all sitting on the patios of our little townhouses, having a coffee, leaving them alone. Like we're not interfering with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, that's my parenting dream is to have a backyard with a whole bunch of other houses that open up to it where all the kids are just mingling together and the parents are supporting each other. And, and that's it. You know, and I don't mean to say this was utopia, <laughs> but it, it just had a kind of rough and tumble mm -hmm. normalness about it that when we moved away, I never saw again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was actually, I don't know if I've told you about this, but that was my grade five and six year. They called it the adventure class and it was modeled after the like one room schoolhouse concept. It was <gasps> magic. It was this like alternative school within the Belleville Hastings County Board of Education. And it was my grade five and six year. And they had, so there's two different classes. It was a 
K one, two, three class, and then a four, five, six class. And they were small. They were like, you know, 20 ish kids in each of the classes. But, you know, if you were in grade six, you would have some friends who were in grade four, some friends who were in grade five. And like, that for me was some of the most powerful learning that I ever had because it was, you gravitated towards people with like interests and similar emotional ages. And it wasn't about you being in, you know, born in 1982 together. It was about an authentic connection with those other mm-hmm. humans. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's what I would <laughs> envision like that it, that yeah. some of these artificial constraints or uh, factory model things that we throw on here that we just stand back a little and go, why are we doing this? And yeah. like, is this a good idea? When I think about, you know, like actually I shouldn't say I never saw it again. Greg was at, at an alternative program that was a, a K to eight school where um they were in like family groupings that were mixed ages and stuff. And that was pretty cool. But you never had this issue of like, like needing reading groups mm-hmm. because like kids went to like, Oh, we want to read the book about this thing. And so they would read the book about this thing in this group. Oh, we want to read the book about this thing. And like the ones that couldn't read so well, the other kids helped them and then they learned to read better. And you know, there was no pressure to sort of move up or, like it was, you know, it's that kind of thing that I think, you know, when we put these constraints in place, then we create these weird problems like, oh, you know, she has a learning disability. Well, maybe she doesn't. <laughs> maybe the disability is the system. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying like, go back to the drawing board. Like, and that might be go back well, to something that's. Yeah. An older I don't want concept, to say that, but, but, no, but yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I, I dig it. Yeah. Or what, or find the new thing, you know, what's like, we know that from before and mm-hmm. there are strengths in the system now for sure. There are, I don't know what they are, but I'm sure they're there. Um, you know, and so what we need, it needs something new and fresh and other ways of approaching it. And, you know, I get excited by things like, um, I keep saying the forest school, but it can't just be that. Mm -hmm. Like that's a piece of it. It's about providing diverse experience and diverse, you know, opening up perspectives that you wouldn't normally get so that people don't get hardened in their, this is the way to do it, but, oh, this is our way to do it. Oh, here's another way. I love it. I love, I love that. I am very I'm very excited to look forward to that future in education. (laughs) Uh, At the end of every show, I always do like a ticket out the door, which just allows people to get to know you as a person a little bit better. And there are silly questions. And it's just like our last final collection of learning from you. Are you ready to do our rapid fire out the door? Do it. Great. Yeah. What's the best gift that you've ever received as a teacher? Oh, receiving an email from someone I taught in that crazy class Mm. saying, you know, she remembered that class. She now was living in South Africa. A few years after she left that class, her parents had split up and she moved back with her mom to India. But that, you know, her writing me and, and recalling the things that she, she remembered, that was like the best. 
What's your favorite book to read to young people? Oh, 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 so many. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know what the problem is because, you know, I have grandchildren and I, so I'll take one of my favorite books to read to them and they're like so disinterested. Like that's, they're not interested in that book. What's your favorite school safe snack? Well, I use, so Friday mornings, one of my favorite things to do was to go to, when I got, like I'd go in, you know, dump my stuff and then I'd go back to the student center um, or if breakfast for the boarders was in the dining hall, go back to there and buy some, um, oh, what do you call them? They're dim sum things. Oh, I can't think of what they're called. And get those and and yep. put some soy sauce and some hot sauce on them delicious mm-hmm. and 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 slightly wicked and i always got soy sauce all over the place and <laughs> um but it was just like the best on a friday morning uh, yeah. what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning I try to go back to sleep what's the last thing you do at the end of the day breathe hmm. if you could meet one edu celebrity who would you want to meet Oh, Parker Palmer. Oh, there you go. What are you going to miss most about being in a school? The casual conversations that ignite something. Hmm. So my last question is usually, what is the future of learning? But I feel like we've already answered that one or touched on it. So what gives you hope right now? I think actually it's the, the energy of right now, like that that things have been shaken up. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have to figure this out again. I mean, says the professional irritant, you could be the professional shaker upper. <laughs> that would be a good like subtitle for you. Well, you know, I, I mean, I wonder if that's just it. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I used to, I, I, I don't want to be the professional irritant anymore because <laughs> that, you know, sort of suggests that I'm you know, like, eh, eh. But, you know, maybe that's what it is I love about this moment and about a snowstorm or, uh, mm. you know, uh, <laughs> is that it, it, it pokes at you, you know, and it aggravates you. And so you have to do something to respond yeah. to it. Um, well, you need both energies, right? Like you need yeah. to have the like routine, the, the regular grist of like everyday teaching everyday life but then you need the snowstorm you need the excuse me they just pop my mic you need the snowstorm you need the like shake up to make yeah. it better to make to figure out what you need and what you don't need yeah yeah and to remind you you know that you do need to be flexible and and ready to yeah. recalibrate that like that you haven't got there yet. Like that there's, that you have to be ready to respond. Yeah. Ugh, perfect words to end on, Dr. Hunsberger. I am (laughs) so eternally grateful for the role that you've played in my life. And I'm so happy to get to share you with other people today. Thank you for talking. Well, you're welcome. I am sending a full, deep bow of gratitude to Dr. Hunsberger for the conversation that we had in this episode. While I am so sad that the pandemic has prevented us from having an in-person dance party to celebrate her exceptional career in education, I, for one, feel like recording this episode together is a pretty decent next best thing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for looping back with me when you have thoughts or feedback on the show. 
One small thing you can do to help grow this podcast is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a few moments and it goes a long way to help other people find this show. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep being your own professional shaker-uppers and remember we are teaching tomorrow.